When we give up our right to prove that we're pleasing God by our Sabbath keeping and our diet, when we give up that, then we realize we have nothing at all to offer Him. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Our podcast today goes to the very heart of the gospel. In this passage from the end of Galatians 2, Paul explains in detail what justification by faith is. This miracle of God's grace to those who believe is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. It is the thing that exposes the falsehood of religions which pretend to be Christian. In fact, justification by faith was the treasure which the Reformers rediscovered as they read Scripture and began to peel away the doctrines of works and rewards that defined the religion that had come to hold the Western world in its grip. Manipulative offerings promising to decrease the suffering of the dead, the doctrine of sacraments as a means of grace— Professional clergy who got rich on the payments of the poor, all these things were exposed when Martin Luther famously met the Catholic clergy at the Diet of Worms, and standing on what he had learned from the book of Galatians, he refused to recant his writings, declaring the biblical doctrine of justification. We all know his cry, "'Here I stand, I can do no other.'" We who have left Adventism for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus have likewise found freedom from the binding lies of our former religion. Justification by faith, as explained in our passage today, exposes the investigative judgment and its incomplete atonement and its fallible Jesus and its doctrine of law-keeping and perfection. The law is not our goal. Rather, the law exposes our sin and condemns us. Jesus alone justifies us through His shed blood, His complete atonement for our sins that occurred that day on Golgotha when He hung in the hell of separation from His Father before crying out, Into your hands I commit my spirit. But his death was not all he did. He rose from the grave on the third day, and that resurrection life that conquered the curse of sin is ours the moment we believe him. The law is fulfilled. We live in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, Nikki and I stand with Martin Luther and say to all the traditions and deceptions of our former Adventist religion, here we stand. We can do no other. But before we dive into this passage, we want you to know that we love your emails and comments. You can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com or go to proclamationmagazine.com and find our online magazines and articles and links to our former Adventist YouTube channel and to this podcast. You can also sign up there for our weekly Proclamation Magazine newsletter, and you may use the Donate tab there to help support us at Life Assurance Ministries as we work together to bring the truth of the real gospel and the real Jesus to those entangled in the confusion of Adventism. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please write a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. And now, Nikki, here is my question. As an Adventist, what did you think justification by faith was? 
Well, you know, I don't think I ever heard the term justification by faith. I always remembered it righteousness by faith. That was mostly what they talked about. So I thought of it as really kind of interpreted that as sanctification by faith. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which I didn't understand. <laughs> So that's the best answer I can give. What about you? It was confusing to me. I did hear the term justification. I didn't hear a lot about justification by faith, although I know I I heard it. But like you, righteousness by faith was the term that Adventists talked about. And it seemed to come out of the movement begun by Jones and Wagner in the 1888 within Adventism, the famous movement of justification or righteousness by faith. But it was never clear to me. And always when I tried to dig down and understand what I was being taught, it came down to this. We can be righteous. We can overcome sin on the basis of that ephemeral term, the merits of Christ, which interpreted meant, trust Jesus and he'll make you good. He'll show you how to be good. He'll show you how to obey. So it was kind of like an infused righteousness. It wasn't what the Bible's teaching us here. It was very vague to me. And I spent quite a bit of time yesterday looking up Ellen White's writings to see if she said anything about justification by faith. And and she actually did. But every single passage I looked at, and it wasn't all of them, was vague, unclear, It was not what Paul is describing here. She'd start out sounding really good, like, yes, we're justified by Christ's shed blood, but then she'd never talk about how faith met in with that and what that did. And she would never come clean and say what she actually believed, which was we had to keep the law. She was forked tongued Mm -hmm. in a sense. So it's not a surprise that we didn't understand. No, and it helps me understand why I could say... And it's weird that I could say it because I didn't even understand it. But I could say, yeah, I believe in righteousness by faith, but we keep God's law. Right. Because we love him. So we keep his law. And that meant the Ten Commandments. And that meant Sabbath. I said the same thing. It was inseparable in relationship to our salvation. So even though I said I believe in righteousness by faith, and I said that was because we loved him, they had to go together in order for us to be saved and we couldn't abandon it before we died, or of course, we lost our salvation. Yes, of course. And isn't it interesting that we didn't say, oh yes, I believe in justification by faith. We said righteousness by faith. Mm -hmm. I did learn somewhere in school that justification meant just as if I'd never sinned. Justification actually implies a lot more than that, and I don't remember it ever being really talked about as something that was in the practical level. It was very theoretical. It was very theological. You know, I heard that too, just as if I never sinned. And I think I've even heard Christians use that to talk about it. But the context, my worldview as an Adventist meant um, you have a clean slate now, and now it's your turn to start painting on the canvas. Don't mess up. But if you do, you can be baptized and born again, and then you'll get another clean slate. And this can happen on and on and on. And I remember one time hearing you guys talk about Pastor Gary visiting in your home, 
And he was talking to a group of former Adventists and he said, one of the most merciful things, if you really believe that, one of the most merciful things you can do after leading someone to Christ is shooting and killing them. (laughs) Yes, because that's what we did believe. Mm -hmm. You could be forgiven. You were right before God. And, you know, it's like Richard said, when he was a kid, he really thought that he was all forgiven and had a clean slate, good to go after he was baptized at the age of 10. And then he fought with his brother and he was devastated because it didn't stop him from sinning. And he figured he'd lost all his righteousness, whatever that was. And then it turns the practice of baptism into a new form of sacrificial system. We're not killing animals, but we're dunking. Keep dunking. Go get dunked again. Absolutely. You fell away, go back. It's just inconsistent with scripture. And you know, the thing that's interesting to me, Nikki, on this side of things this long in the Christian community, I think there are some Christians who actually misunderstand what this is all about as well. I think they understand far better than Adventists, but I do think there are a lot of Christians who do believe they can lose their salvation if they sin badly enough. That's a whole different podcast, actually. But justification by faith, as Paul teaches us in our passage today, is an unbelievable miracle, and the implications of it are so big that I would have thought it was impossible when I was an Adventist. Yeah, absolutely. It was cheap grace. (laughs) (laughs) We never thought about what it meant that Jesus actually took our sins and died. (laughs) No. No, well, we had all the pre-creation and (laughs) post-creation, and we had all of that special information from Ellen White that you had to fit in with Scripture somehow. And so if you have Jesus taking your blood up to this physical temple in heaven and then applying it only to confess sins, then then of course it's not finished and you can't know you're justified really completely until it's all over. But according to Paul, justification by faith is the assurance of your salvation. Absolutely. And I think this would be a good time just to read the contrast to that. I did find a rather shocking couple sets of quotes that clearly identify the Adventist understanding of, quotes, justification by faith. And this is from a booklet called Justification by Faith, page 9, paragraph 5 and 6, and it's by J.H. Wagoner. Now, any of you with an Adventist background will remember that name, J.H. Wagoner, as being one of the two men, Jones and Wagner, who came up with what became known within Adventism as the 1888 movement. When they spoke in Minnesota in 1888 at a church meeting and explained what they had understood from reading the scripture about Jesus' blood justifying us from sin. It was not something Adventism had been teaching, and it really did shake up the church. Ellen White endorsed what they said as the true gospel, but it was never carried to its logical conclusion, which is, if you have Jesus, you no longer need the law which Jesus fulfilled. They tried to syncretize the two into a mishmash that was always confusing. So, here's what Wagoner wrote about justification by faith. We have seen that justification will not save us. Now, Nikki, you were just talking about justification is the evidence and the proof and the reason we can know we're saved. That's exactly what Paul will say. We have seen, he says, that justification will not save us. By this we mean justification without any further work. He that is justified will be saved only if he endures to the end. 
if he patiently continues in well-doing, if he works out his own salvation with fear and trembling, if he adds to his faith virtue and all the Christian graces. Therefore, the fact that he is or has been justified by faith is not a sufficient ground of assurance that he will be finally saved. And then he goes on. The main ground of this error that the debt is paid so that the work of salvation is already completed, lies in the statement, now so generally believed, that the atonement was made on the cross of Christ. And he goes on, the proof in the scriptures is abundant that the slaying of the offering or sacrifice did not make atonement. It was preparatory to making the atonement. After the offering was slain, the priest took the blood into the sanctuary and there made the atonement. Nikki, this is Adventism. This is what we all grew up with. This is how we understood justification as Adventists. Okay, fine. Jesus's blood forgives you up to this minute. And if you're not now keeping the law, getting more and more righteous, you won't be saved even though you have Jesus. And atonement is not completed on the cross. Now, this is where so many Christians misunderstand Adventism. They do teach that the atonement was not completed on the cross. Now, I know this isn't Ellen White, but she taught this too in much more muddled and vague terms. Wagoner was considered an authentic author within Adventism, and this was on the Ellen White website. This is what Adventists believe about justification by faith. It's not a done deal. Mm -mm. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because Jesus said to the Jews, tear down this temple in three days and I will raise it up again. And we believers are referred to as a temple. God indwells us. So even going with his argument that after the blood is shed, it's then brought into the temple. Christ himself was the temple of God, where God dwelled. So even his argument is clearly rooted in a physical concept of God in this physical sanctuary, this physical uh, most holy place in heaven, which by the way, Ellen White doesn't even have God seated in. His throne room is not even in the most holy place, which says something. Yes. It's just so convoluted and so um, creative. (laughs) Yes. And confusing. Yes. It's heresy. It's blasphemy against the finished work of our Lord Jesus. And Adventism is very, very dark. When you believe, as Adventists actually teach, and even if they can't articulate it, they do believe that Jesus' blood did not take care of all of our sin when he died, that he has to be up in heaven sprinkling drops of blood on confessed sins if we remember to confess them. That's horrifying. That's not in the Bible. And yet, that is what this creator of the famed 1888 movement within Adventism, he said this about it. He's not teaching the true gospel any more than Ellen White has taught the true gospel, any more than the 28 fundamental beliefs teach the true gospel. Adventism is Adventism, and it does not believe in a finished atonement on the cross. No, it redefines everything. Mm -hmm. Even here, he says that you're only saved if you endure to the end. And it sounds like the Bible, but when we read the New Testament, we're told this endurance is about what we believe. It's about our faith. If you hold fast to the gospel, which we preach to you, if you endure, if you hold fast to your faith, 
It's all about knowing what's true and holding fast to the truth while in the presence of so much deception. Yes. And not to forget, the Philippians 1.6 says that God completes what He begins in us. We don't complete it. He does because Jesus' work was finished. Yeah. That is a promise because Jesus' sacrifice and atonement were completed on the cross. And, you know, even their sacred cow, the Sabbath, God said that the Sabbath was a sign between Him and Israel that He sanctifies. Yes. It is God who sanctifies. So the whole emphasis here is that you have to continue to do good, and that's not in the Bible. It's not even in the Old Testament. So, Nikki, would you read for us Galatians 2, 15 to 21, and let's talk our way through this. This is the core definition of justification by faith and assess the stage for the rest of this book. In fact, possibly for the rest of Paul's epistles. And this is a part of his conversation with Peter when he calls him out for separating from the Gentiles. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Wow. And it's interesting thinking of these words immediately following his story of how he reprimanded Peter Mm -hmm. for withdrawing from the Gentiles when the Judaizers came and shamed him. In 15, what is the declaration that Paul is making to Peter? And this is interesting because where he goes with this, he brings himself and Peter into the same arena as all Gentiles as well. So what is he saying here in 15? Well, he's clarifying that he and Peter are from among the Jews. They are not from the Gentile sinners. So even they, who are Jews, have lived free, apart from the law, able to eat with Gentiles and participate in fellowship with Gentiles. And yet now Peter is aligning himself with teachers who are suggesting that that this is wrong. Exactly. Can I just say to you, as an Adventist, when I heard the word Gentile, I thought pagan. I didn't think about Jews and Gentiles because I was a Jew, right? I was spiritual Israel. That's right. And so if I thought of myself as spiritual Israel and then I thought of Gentiles, I thought of people who were outside the church. It's clear in Galatians, it's clear in the New Testament that there are Gentile believers and there are Jewish believers. And so he's speaking a common language now with Peter. Hey, you know. Yeah. You know. You know better. Yes. He's making a comparison, not a contrast. He's saying, yes, of course we're Jews and not Gentiles, but in Christ, that division is done. And that's where he's going to go with this discussion. We're all on the same playing field. It's not like as an Adventist, I would have thought, just like you said, oh yes, spiritual Israel and oh, the outsiders. Mm -hmm. Got to bring them in. Got to get them circumcised. Right. Right. 
As an Adventist, I would have read it that way too. He's now made the statement, you know, he says to Peter, you know, we're Jews. But then he goes on and says what in verse 16? Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. What's he saying here to Peter? It looks to me like he's saying, Peter, you know. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Paul going to Peter and telling him the gospel that he's preaching. He's brought Titus with him. Mm -hmm. They don't compel him to get circumcised. Peter says, clearly, your message is from God. Mm -hmm. And he gives him the right hand of fellowship. So when he says to him, nevertheless, knowing in that Greek word for knowing means knowing for certain. Uh Uh-huh. So the two of them know for certain that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so even they who already are circumcised are believing on Jesus Christ. They believe in Jesus Christ so that they can be justified by faith, not works of the law. And then he says, no flesh, Jew or Gentile or anything else, (laughs) no flesh will be justified through the works of the law. That is so profound. And you know, I I heard an interesting remark. I was listening to a sermon by S. Lewis Johnson on this passage, and he pointed out that in the Greek, this word law, no one is justified by the works of the law. He says, in Greek, there is no article before the word law. So it would read, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of law. S. Lewis Johnson made the point that Paul is saying more then no one is justified by the Ten Commandments or by the Mosaic Law, but by any work that someone thinks is required to please God. Any law. That's strong. It's really strong. No one is justified by works of law. There's no deed you can do that will make Jesus accept you. None. None. Whether it's in the Ten or in the Mosaic Covenant or somewhere else. It's no work of law will justify you. None. And he says it's also really significant that it's three times in this verse that Paul says, no law, no one is justified by work of the law. So in verse 16, he says, knowing a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faith in Jesus. And then we who believe in Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Three times he says this in different formulations. He wants to be sure that no one reading this can possibly miss the point. You can't do any work to justify yourself before God. None. And that includes Sabbath. And that includes meats. And that includes circumcision. And that includes the commands that were given by the apostles in the New Testament to the church. That's That's not how we're justified. That's a great point. The commands, and let's review that, Nikki, because I think that's a really important point. The commands in the New Testament, in the epistles, are written to believers. These letters are written to believers, so let's not forget the indicatives and the imperatives. The indicatives are the statements of fact, the statements of truth. These letters are addressed to brothers, to believers, to the church. 
That's the indicative. They have trusted Christ. They have been born again. Now that that has happened, Paul is giving commands and instruction. Those imperatives, those commands, those are only for those who have believed. Mm-hmm. You're not justified by these commands. And as an Adventist, I thought I had to be. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's like commanding the caterpillar to fly. It can't. It needs to become a butterfly. You can't obey the command until you are what you are to be. Right. So when Paul talks in other epistles about his lists of sins, which include greed and gluttony and coarse language, those are commands for believers. Unbelievers have only one command— to believe. Mm-hmm. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once that happens, once one is born again, then these commands are for them. So you're right. The commands in the New Testament are not how we're justified. And when we speak of believers, we're speaking of people who are declared justified, declared righteous, who are saved. We're not just talking about people who believe and then they're trying to get saved. Right. And I know that seems so redundant, but I know how I would have heard that sentence. This is for believers. I would have said, yeah, I know. Believers have to obey these things though. Otherwise you fall away from God. But believer in this context is synonymous with past tense saved. Yes. Born again. Transferred. Yes. <laughs> from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. Born of God, John one twelve. Um, transferred from death into life, John 5, 24. Believers are people who know they're saved because the Spirit testifies with their spirit that they are children of God, Romans 8, 14 to 17. And this does not contradict the passages of Scripture that talk about us doing works for God, being judged for the works that we do. Exactly. Being rewarded. That's another podcast. Yeah. But salvation is not a reward. No. And I didn't understand that as an Adventist. When I read rewards in the New Testament, judged for our works, rewarded for our works, I read that saved Mm -hmm. if your works are good. Mm -hmm. Salvation is a free gift. It is not a reward. It is not a wage. (laughs) Just getting that straight before we go on here. (laughs) So three times Paul reiterates We are never justified by any work of law. And even if we make the New Testament commands a law that we're supposed to do, that won't justify us. It won't save us. So then we move on to verse 17. He continues his argument. But if, and he's speaking again to Peter as a Jew, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Now, if this verse seems just a little bit confusing, you're in good company. (laughs) A lot of commentators have felt this was a difficult passage to interpret, and there are slight variations in the way various commentators understand it. Nikki, talk about some of the things that you read about this passage. Well, I read a commentator named William Hendrickson, found him on the Precept Austin website. And he essentially says that Paul is responding to the argument being laid out by the Judaizers, that unless you are circumcised, you are not acting in obedience and faith, and you're not going to be saved. Mm -hmm. You have to be circumcised. But Christ is the one who taught them that salvation is through him alone. Everything Paul has said up to this point, he made clear, was given to him by God. This isn't his interpretation. He was given a revelation 
and given this gospel, this mystery of the gospel that he was commissioned to go and preach. And so if Christ is the one who taught him the things that the Judaizers are accusing him of being in sin for, the question then is, so is Christ a minister of sin? And his answer? Far from it. It depends on your version. (laughs) Yeah. And may it never be. (laughs) J. Vernon McGee explains the verse this way. It's very similar to what you said, just a slightly different angle. The sense of this verse seems to be this. Since the Jew had to forsake the law in order to be justified by Christ and therefore take his place as a sinner, is Christ the one who makes him a sinner? And Paul's answer is, of course not. And I think that's a really interesting point that these two commentators make. Paul is admitting here to Peter that even the Jews had to let go of the law. They had to let go of the law in order to know they were utterly sinful. They couldn't justify themselves in their own minds by saying, but I'm keeping the law. Like Paul even tries to explain his past in Philippians 3. Mm -hmm. That's not it. We have to let go of the law and we realize we're utter sinners just like the Gentiles. There's no difference. We have to be justified by Christ. The law doesn't help us. And if that's the case, if trusting in Christ makes us realize our sin, does that make him a sinner? No. And you know, it's interesting to me that this argument is partially what comes up when we leave Adventism. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, when we leave, what's the thing you hear? So you're now free to break all the commandments. You can do whatever you want. And the answer is no. No. (laughs) The law accuses us. When we give up our right to prove that we're pleasing God by our Sabbath keeping and our diet, then when we give up that, then we realize we have nothing at all to offer Him for our own justification. We have only Him. Only Him. In anticipation of that accusation, because we do frequently get it when we're talking about this, I found this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Justification by faith does not make us think lightly of sin. On the contrary, it creates in us such love to God that we loathe the very idea of offending Him. For the tendency of the gospel of grace is to excite gratitude in those who receive it. If I am freely pardoned, then I must love him who has thus generously forgiven me. Gratitude is the root of true virtue and the mainspring of all holiness. I thought he articulated that well. I think it's a supernatural thing. It is. And so it becomes really hard to explain to people. But I always go back to that Ezekiel 36 passage when he promises this new covenant and that he's going to put his spirit in us and give us a new spirit. And he says, and cause you to walk in my statutes, in my ways. He does it. Again, it goes back to that that whole purpose of the Sabbath to show that it is God who sanctifies. Nikki, that's really interesting. That Spurgeon quote actually makes me think of something that I thought about yesterday in reading in First Kings with Richard in one of our treks, slow as it is, through the Old Testament. <laughs> but um, we were reading about the end of David's life where he appoints Solomon and makes sure he is crowned king before he dies because one of his older sons is trying to usurp the throne and God had clearly said Solomon was to be king. So David was arranging for that. And then he gives Solomon his instructions for what he wants him to do when he, after David dies and Solomon takes the throne. And part of his instructions to Solomon are 
to complete the acts of justice against three different people that David had allowed to go unpunished, Joab and two other people that had shed innocent blood under his watch or who had done other things that were traitorous or against the law, actually, and they were dangerous to the kingdom. And he had appointed Solomon to make sure he finished the justice against them. And, you know, David died. And we all know that David was a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. We know he is the father of Jesus. He is a type of Christ. And we also know Solomon completed those acts and built the temple. But what I was thinking was, David lived prior to the cross. And while he had faith in God that God gave him, while he had a repentant heart, he was a very weak man in certain ways. He was a weak father. He was a weak disciplinarian, even in the kingdom. And he left unfinished business that he should have taken care of as the king of Israel. And he passed it off to his successor, which was putting a burden on Solomon that he actually should have taken care of. It made more trouble in the kingdom. Now, I'm not here to judge David, but the point I'm trying to make is this. David was not born again in the New Testament sense. Jesus had not yet died. He had not yet shed that blood of atonement that completely satisfied the wrath of God against sin. He had not risen from the dead. David was saved through faith based on the future shedding of blood that Jesus was about to do. But he was not born again in the way the church is born again. And I think that's a really interesting comparison. That's why the commands in the New Testament are different from the commands to Israel in the law. The commands in the New Testament are to people who have trusted Jesus' shed blood, who have received the fulfillment of that Ezekiel prophecy, who do have new life in them, a new heart, a new spirit, sealed with the Holy Spirit. The church is a different creation from Israel. Mm -hmm. And we look at David and we thank the Lord for the witness and the prophecies of David, and we thank Him for the encouragement that a man like David is to us who still have sinful flesh, but we know that he was not part of the church. And what Spurgeon says here is right. When we're born again, there's something that changes in us. It's not just faith in God that God gives a person. It is a new creation. The Adventist argument, are you going to go out and sin now, is a moot point. It's a new reality. God convicts us if we sin. We're deeply aware of it, and He gives us a new desire. Yeah, and it's a really hard thing to explain to people who feel like they need the compass of the list of rules, but they just have to turn and see the face of Christ. They have to turn to Jesus, let Him remove that veil, and come to faith. And then they'll get it. <laughs> yes, it's true. It's true. Well, from 17, he moves on to 18. After saying, if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Then he says this, for if I rebuild what I once have destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. This is an amazingly powerful sentence. What is he saying here, Nikki? Well, Paul has just had this long ministry. I mean, I understand this is his first letter, but we know that he had been preaching. He, at this point, he's got Barnabas, he's got Titus, he's already mm -hmm. met with Peter. He has this long ministry preaching the gospel. 
So now if he decides to rebuild what he's torn down, meaning if he builds up the law as being important again after he's made very clear that no one will be justified by works of the law, he's proving himself to be a wrongdoer either. This is kind of how I see it. Doesn't mean I'm right. (laughs) Either he was a wrongdoer when he taught that the law was unnecessary or he's a wrongdoer in repenting and going back to the law. It's very interesting because he is actually addressing the problem that's facing the Galatian church. The reason for this letter is the Judaizers were trying to convince these Gentile believers to add the law to their faith. And he's really, really clear that if he goes back and rebuilds the law as a requirement, he's sinning. He's going to make that even more clear as we move into chapters four and five. It's going to become very clear. He is equating adding the law to faith in Christ proves he would be a sinner if he were doing that. And this is really powerful when you think about the context of his instructing Peter, saying, Peter, you had the vision. You saw Cornelius come to faith. What are you doing? Yeah, he's making it very clear that the message of the Judaizers is not compatible with the gospel. If it is, then Christ is this minister of sin. And if it isn't, then Peter's in big trouble. You can't blend this. You can't blend this. You know, I am still stunned, Nikki, how many true Christians probably have a little blurred understanding of this. I don't even know why. But it seems frightening to so many people to think that what Paul says here really is true. You really can accept the fulfillment of the law in the Lord Jesus, who embodies every act and thought and definition of righteousness in himself. He is our righteousness. He is the one we trust. He is the one who changes us. The law was only a mirror only a shadow, only something to point out our sin, only something to say, there's someone coming and you'll know him when you see him because he will fulfill this shadow. It's frightening to people to let go of the law. I wonder if that's because they don't fully grasp what Christ did. I think that for those who say, but I have to X, Y, Z, but I still need to, whatever. I think they need to go and spend a significant amount of time in Ephesians 1 and 2. That's a great point. Based on Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, I don't think we actually come to true saving faith until we believe the gospel. I agree. It's not enough to hold it in our hand and turn it around and look at it and talk about it and wonder what my role is. We have to believe what God says in His Word. And when we hear the Word of truth and believe, we are sealed in Him with the promised Holy Spirit. We are raised to life in Christ That is the moment when everything changes. And Nikki, again, I know I've said this before, but I'm going to repeat it because it's my illustration personally of what you just described. I remember the day I stood looking out the window and realized I would have to leave Adventism because it did not teach the gospel. And I was devastated. I was depressed. I felt like I was losing my very identity. Really, everything that I was, I was saying goodbye to. And I wondered if I could equivocate. Mm -hmm. Can I somehow accept Jesus and, and stay Adventist? And I remember as clearly as if it were today that I was looking out the window and I realized that if I stayed Adventist and equivocated, 
I would be betraying Jesus. And I knew I couldn't betray Jesus. Nikki, that is not me. That is not my thought. Me, the me in that was losing everything I knew. I was facing the loss of my livelihood, my church, my support group, possibly Richard's job, possibly losing the house if Richard lost his job at Loma Linda. I was facing the loss of everything, including who I thought I was. And it was only the Lord that let me know he was sufficient. I couldn't betray him. I couldn't do both. And if I hadn't, decided I couldn't betray Jesus, I would never have had the ability to look back and realize he was enough. I had to trust him when he presented himself to me that way. And when I did, I knew he was enough. No matter what happened, he was enough. And he gave me a desire to love him and to please him. I don't want to go and break commandments. I want to please the Lord, and I pray regularly that He will keep me faithful, because I can't keep myself faithful in my sinful flesh, but I want Him to keep me faithful. And that's because you love Him. It's not because you think your faithfulness is what's going to get you through the door. No, right. And that's a really hard thing to explain to people. Yeah, it is. So verse 19, he says, "'For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God.'" What does he mean by that, Colleen? Paul is explaining what actually happened when he trusted Jesus. Now, remember, Paul has explained in other places that he had been a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, blameless, he says in Philippians 3, blameless concerning the law. But he died to the law so that he might live to God. And the dying to the law is not something he just decided to do. The law condemned Paul. The law was very clear to Paul that When he finally understood who Jesus was, and he saw Jesus's righteousness and supreme sovereign power over him, he realized that all of the stuff he'd been doing wasn't helping. He wasn't recommending himself to God. The law condemned him because he was intrinsically a sinner, and he knew He knew that he had been actually breaking the law when he was out killing the Christians instead of serving God as he had thought. The law condemned him. It declared a death sentence to anyone who sinned, and Paul realized he was the sinner the law condemned. So, under the law, the terms of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience were spelled out, and he suddenly, when he looked at Jesus and encountered him on that road to Damascus, he knew he had been disobedient, even though he had been deceived into thinking he was obedient. I mean, it reminds me of being an Adventist, right? Mm -hmm. But when you look at Jesus and you realize that all of that was really disobedience because you've never trusted Jesus, the law condemned him to death. And so, the law set up a really specific legal system that condemned the nation of Israel. Legally, because of their sin, because of their natural sinful state, God could have wiped out Israel. They continued to disobey him because they all broke the law, and they broke the law because they were all dead in sin. And then in the law, God gave Israel a sacrificial system. Actually, there were five different sacrifices spelled out in the law, each one representing some aspect of Christ and his work for humanity. And through offering these sacrifices, they could 
satisfy temporarily their need for forgiveness and justification, but it wasn't permanent because it was just animals. These sacrifices showed Israel that God required death for sin, but it also provided a way for sufficient blood sacrifices to be offered. The law accused man, and in this case, Paul is personalizing it because the law accused him. The law is responsible for the legal system that resulted in Jesus's death. And I think this is such an interesting point. I was reading a passage in J. Vernon McGee's commentary on this part of Galatians, and I had never thought of it that way before. Just the way he explained it, that the the law laid out the legal system for Israel that provided a way for Israel to be satisfied with God temporarily, but it also was the legal system that resulted in Jesus's death. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all of those five different sacrifices by dying. He, as the representative man, took our sin into himself and died on the cross as our substitute. And so, when Paul realized he was condemned under the law, all his good deeds were condemned even because he himself was a sinner. Paul died to the law when he realized he was a sinner. If you think about it, if the law condemns you to death and a man dies because the law has condemned him to death, that dead man is no longer under the law. The law's purpose has been served and that man is dead and the law has no more power over him. And that's the metaphor Paul is using for himself. When he realized he was a sinner condemned to death, he died to the law. All he had then was Jesus. The law had no more power over him. The law essentially killed him. And in order to be alive, he had to trust the one who had actually fulfilled the law. It makes me think of Romans 8. I feel like these two verses, 19 and 20, are a summary of Romans chapter 8. In the beginning of Romans 8, it says, For God has done, this is verses 3 and 4, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I remember the first time I read that and noticed that requirement was singular. Oh, interesting. It was kind of a worldview change for me when I saw this. The righteous requirement of the law that Jesus fulfilled was death for sin. He took the sin of humanity and he died. And in Christ, I died. And in Christ... I'm raised to life. John MacArthur says on this verse, when a person is convicted of a capital crime and executed, the law has no further claim on him. So it is with the Christian who has died in Christ, who paid penalty for his sin in full and rises to new life in him. Justice has been satisfied and he is forever free from any further penalty. You know, that's the thing that Adventism missed. One of the arguments which was really convoluted in the J.H. Wagoner tract that I quoted from at the beginning, he was trying to make the case that there's a difference between being in debt to God or guilty and being a criminal, that Jesus's blood may pay the debt, but it doesn't mean that you are not a criminal anymore. So we are not made the righteousness of God in Christ. We're just going to cut that out of our Bible. That's the Adventist teaching. They can say all the words, but under the surface, Wagner actually explained it. 
it's different to be guilty and different to be a criminal. You can be out of debt, but you're not infused with righteousness. Don't they feel clever when they're able to come up with little formulas to merge the Bible with Ellen White and the great controversy worldview? They feel so clever. What Adventism refuses to see and does not teach is that justification is not just forgiving our sins. It's not just making us as if we'd never sinned. And I remember my surprise many years ago when I heard Pastor Gary Inrig teach this in a sermon. I'd never thought of it before because obviously, hello, Adventism had not taught it to me. But the justification does make us as if we'd never sinned, yes. But it does more than that. The meaning of the word is to add to our account. We're not just forgiven of what we have done, and we're now set on an even playing field that we have to stay in the status quo, keep our sins from accumulating so that we're lost again. No, justification forgives us of our past sins, and it credits us with the actual righteousness of God in Christ, so that in our heavenly account, we have the righteousness of God as we're in Christ credited. And that's what Jesus does for us. That's what God sees when he looks at us. So, it's not just bringing us up to ground zero. It's elevating us and making us sanctified in position in front of God as his adopted child, credited with the righteousness of Christ. And that's what Adventism will not teach. No, I never understood that as an Adventist. I didn't either. In my preparation for this podcast, I read that justification is the opposite of condemnation. And condemnation is a sentencing. Justification is a sentencing. It's just a good one. Yes. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That is the most amazing thing. And then to realize that he goes on in that same chapter and says that we who are in the Spirit have been adopted as God's children, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings. And we will. And included in this amazingly good news, (laughs) and in that chapter, he talks about the fact that we will be resurrected. The end of the story is certain. It's fixed when we're in Christ. We will be resurrected, those who have believed and been born again, and we will go and be with Him. And it's because He keeps us and He finishes what He starts in us, not because we have managed to be good and keep the law. And people will say, oh, so you believe in once saved, always saved? And I say, that's a red herring. The Bible never uses the phrase, once saved, always saved. The Bible does say that God foreknows and elects and chooses His own. He does say, if you hear the gospel of your salvation, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He does say that He holds us and completes us, that we are His workmanship. We have to just know that the words of the Bible mean what they say and stop making formulas to try to explain away or balance out the things that seem to be different perspectives on the same subject. We know that the words are true, and God saves us when we are justified. Wagner was wrong. It does mean we are saved. So, Paul ends this passage by talking about being crucified with Christ. It's no longer he who lives 
but Christ who lives in him. And the life, he says, which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And I just want to say about this, everything about our lives when we trust Jesus is done in Christ. He places us in himself when he gives us new birth. You know, these verses make me think of the mystery of the gospel that Paul talks about in Colossians 1, 26 and 27. And in Colossians 2, 6, 7, he tells us, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. We receive him through faith. And the mystery of the gospel he talks about in Colossians chapter 1 is that Christ is in us. Yeah. And he says that he now lives with Christ in him. He lives by faith. He came by faith, and now he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself up for him. When we walk through these hard things, when we are unpacking a cult or enduring all that we are all enduring right now at Mm -hmm. this moment in history, we walk with the Lord having faith in who He is, trusting Him, remembering that He says, even when we're faithless, He is faithful. Yeah. And that's where all of our hope comes from. Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is what it is to live by faith in the Son of God. And when we know all of that is true and fixed by our omnipotent God, then we can't possibly nullify the grace of God. That's right. And we can't add to it. By Sabbath keeping, we can't ensure it by a good diet. We can only thank him. And I think it's really interesting that he ends this by saying, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You know, he is pointing us again back to the fact that the Lord Jesus fulfilled the law, which was given to prefigure him. Romans 3:21 says that the righteousness of God is manifested or witnessed in the law and the prophets. When Jesus came and did everything that the law and the prophets said the Messiah would do, when he came and fulfilled all the shadows of the ceremonies and the sacred days, he became the fulfillment of the law to make it visible that he was the one who was expected, who would come and take care of our sin. The law adds nothing to us. Jesus has fulfilled it. He alone, his intrinsic, eternal, omnipotent, sovereign righteousness of God is what enabled him to fulfill the law. It wasn't that he came and lived and prayed hard and depended on the Holy Spirit and, oh, barely made it, but showed us how to do it. No, he was God in the flesh, and he kept the law because he was God in the flesh, the one who wrote the law. And he is our righteousness. It's not his law-keeping that saved us. It's him. He himself saves us and justifies us. If you haven't trusted this Jesus who fulfilled the law and all of the righteousness of God was manifested when he became sin for us, died the death the law demanded, and rose from death and broke our curse. Go to Galatians and read chapter 2 and realize Jesus has done this for you. And he asks you to trust him, to believe in him. And if you do, you will be saved.
If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails containing new articles every week delivered on Fridays. And you can also find a donate tab there as well if you'd like to come alongside us with your financial support. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and please leave a review wherever you listen. And join us next week as we begin chapter three and learn what it means that faith brings righteousness. We'll see you then.